open once again to the book of Judges, chapter 12, just a short passage from the end of chapter 12 and to verse 1 of chapter 13. If you have one of our church Bibles, you can find that on page 199. If you don't have a Bible, you could raise your hand. I think the ushers have some they could bring to you. So Judges, chapter 12. Beginning in verse 8. This is what Scripture says. And after him, that is Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had thirty sons and thirty daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and thirty daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel the Pirithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You would and open to Judges chapter 12. You might have, I hope, noticed throughout the course of our worship of God today, we have placed particular emphasis upon the nature of God, the triune God. I would commend to you Psalm 107. We just sang a tiny little bit of Psalm 107. And maybe tonight before you go to bed, you might read all of Psalm 107, which recounts the cycle of Israel's history where they cry out to God, God rescues them and then they turn to their idols and they suffer and then they cry out to God and God rescues them and they turn to their idols and they suffer. And you can read Psalm 107, which we just sang and think, ah, Israel, you should have just looked to God. And then you ought to just go right to your bathroom and look in the mirror. Because that's you and that's me. I will admit it, uh, one of my uh, great temptations in life is I like to think about a week on a beach, by the ocean, under the sun, with my wife, and none of you. (laughs) No offense, I love you all. No questions, no decisions. It's a nice little person who says, would you like to eat now? And I'm like, okay. Uh, That sounds all right to me. I mean, I I really, really love this idea. I will not admit, okay, sellafications.com, every Friday at 4 o'clock sends me an email and says, how about this week, Paul? And I click on it every week as a fool. No, I don't click on it every week. I, I, I have to remind myself again and again and again that the rest and the comfort, the seemingly perfect days of no stress, are at best a little break from normal life and at worst a really, really pathetic God. 
Do you have something like that in your life? Something that is particularly, I mean, in and of itself is not a bad thing, but something you start to believe that I must have this thing or I must have that experience and then my life will be perfect. Then I shall be satisfied. It is easy to take a good thing and turn it into an idol, a replacement savior, a functional God, something that you believe you can manipulate or control in order to satisfy your soul. And how very, very different it is to find your rest in the very real and unpredictable and good God to trust him fully, even when he seems to be giving you many reasons not to, many reasons to question his wisdom, his direction, his path for your life, how much better it is in those moments in particular to yield to his powerful providence over all things. In many ways, this is part of what the book of Judges has been teaching us. Now we are, chapter 12, we're, we're right on the edge of the last four judges. We're going to deal with three of them in particular today. The last one's going to take a couple of weeks. But this gives us a good spot in kind of the, the narrative, of the, the arc of the story of the whole book of Judges to just pause for a moment and look around a little bit. The book of Judges is not some randomly pieced together hodgepodge of short stories and historical oddities. It's a carefully crafted history of how God worked through one stage of Israel's relationship with him. It's a stage that covers about four centuries, 400 years. It's framed around these 12 judges or saviors or deliverers. And this history keeps pointing out the same thing over and over and over again. God is good. Idols are bad. Shall we say it out loud together? God is good. Idols are bad. If you just walk out of the book of Judges with that, you've got it. And this becomes increasingly clear as, as the narrative, the storyline kind of winds around these various epochs and, and judges over the 400 years. We're going to look at three minor judges, but before we do that, I want you to see where these three fit into the 12 judges. So this is our first observation, 12 judges who show us that there are two ways to live. 12 judges who show us there are two ways to live. I will note that we try to put a sermon outline in this that you were given on the way in. You might find that particularly helpful to observe today because we're looking at a lot of names and different chapters kind of flying high. And so it can be e easier just to follow along if you can see some of that in front of you. So here we've got 12 judges who show us the two ways to live. The whole book of Judges, if, in fact, that's why we sang Psalm 107. If you saw there in the second verse of Psalm 107, he gathered them from out of lands, from north, south, east, and west. They strayed in deserts, pathless way, no city found for rest. They were looking for rest. And the whole book of Judges, in some ways, can be framed around this idea of rest. Rest in the sense of complete Freedom from 
trouble from enemies as you trust in Yahweh. That kind of rest. So look at these 12 judges briefly as it concerns rest. Othniel, back in chapter 3, is the first judge. Under him the land had rest for 40 years. Then comes the second judge, Ehud, chapter 3. After him and his judgeship, the land had rest for 80 years. There's Shamgar, our first minor judge, no mention of rest. Then Deborah, the land had rest for 40 years. Then Gideon, the land had rest for another 40 years. But Gideon has the crazy son Abimelech, right, who tries to become king and the whole, it almost brings the whole nation into civil war. And it's right there that something changes in the book of Judges. Rest is not spoken of again. Instead of years of rest being reported with each judge, now it's years of judgeship or years of reign that is reported with each judge. So you go from the land had rest for 40 years to Tola, the second minor judge, Judges 10. He judged Israel for 23 years, no mention of rest. Then Jair, who judged Israel 22 years. Uh, then Jephthah, who judged Israel six years. Then Ibzin, the fourth minor judge, he judged Israel seven years. Then Elon, he judged Israel 10 years. Abdin, the sixth and last of the minor judges, he judged Israel eight years. So you go from the land had rest for 40 years to something like he judged Israel for so many years. And by switching from reporting the years of rest to years of judgeship, perhaps the author of this book is pointing out to us that God produced rest and political peace are not the same thing. And just like us, if we're not reading carefully, God's withdrawal of rest is easily missed. Israel easily, frequently mistook political peace as God's rest, as God's blessing. But that was not the case. In fact, if you state it oppositely, we humans are experts at attributing to God what is actually only the work of men. For instance, we look at one church with hundreds or thousands of members and we think, oh, God is really at work there. And then maybe we drive by the little country bumpkin church some Sunday. It's got five cars out front and we think, clearly the Lord is not at work there. When in reality, it might be that every angel eye in heaven is locked on to that tiny little congregation because Jesus stands with that lampstand while he left the big kahuna church years ago. Or vice versa. You cannot see what you cannot see. And yet we are prone to trust our eyes more than our Bibles. There are many ways to mess this up. For instance, do you love the Savior? Or do you trust some famous preacher? In his day, the young Robert Murray McShane was famous. People would travel to attend church to hear this man preach. He was famous. He said this once in a sermon to his own people. A minister, a pastor, a minister will make a poor savior in the day of wrath. 
It is not knowing a minister or loving one or hearing one that will save. You need to have your hand on the head of the lamb for yourselves. I fear I will need to be a swift witness against many of my people in the day of the Lord that they look to me and not to Christ when I preach to them. Is your hand on the head of the world's only savior? Or are you trusting in your devotion to some famous talking head? The only way to be saved is to be right with Christ and be assured that in the last day we will discover that much of what our eyes thought was certainly the work of God was nothing more than the efforts of men. And what we discounted as unworthy, backwards, was the glorious work of God through weakness. Once those three last minor judges are listed, we go to the last judge, Samson. He's the last. There's no more judges after him. And yet there's still a lot of the book of judges after Samson because from chapter 17 onwards, the narrative shifts. And and it seems like what's happening now, the judges end. And so the, the threat changes. Things move from externally generated invading army risks to the internal threats to Israel's preservation through people just, well, what the, what the author will say in chapter 17, 6, in those, days, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that overall structure of the whole book is very deliberate. Remember how the book started? Can you, can you in your mind go all the way back to chapter 1 with that strange recounting of Israel going and conquering this place and this place and this place and that place and they kind of got people out of here but not people out of there, that whole like long section there. Why is he starting there? He's saying, look, Israel got into the promised land just like the Lord said they would but only sort of because of their disobedience. They conquered in bits and pieces because they were continuing, continually failing to rid the land of the idolaters and the idols that were there. They were making peace with the enemy rather than cleansing the land of its Amorite idolatry and idolizers. That Amorite Canaanite idolatry was a fake religion that was ripe with sexual immorality, murder, self-aggrandizement, the promise of physical provision. And that Canaanite religion was a tolerated leaven of false religion that was always poisoning the nation. They kept turning to the fake gods that their own Yahweh had just conquered. And this idolatry of Yahweh's people is the singular issue in the book. The very thing they were not to do, they keep doing over and over and over again. Even after the times they come to their senses and return to Yahweh and he saves them and he gives them rest again for years and years, they drift back into that idolatry. Israel were professional repeat offenders with idolatry. I wonder if you are. This book will tell you where that takes you in the end because by the time you get to the end of the book, the last two episodes of the book after uh, Samson, it's like there's, the, the book ends yelling at you saying, here's where you will go if you turn your back on the Lord and try to syncretize your pagan idolatry with him. Meaning you talk all about Yahweh, you talk all about Jesus, 
but you're really also worshiping your money or your fame or somebody's approval or something else. When you try to put all that into a hodgepodge and live that way, the end of the book of Judges says, this is what you get. When every man does what is right in his own eyes. It's chaos. It's chaos. So the 12 judges all together tell us there are only two ways to live. You're either fully devoted to Yahweh or you go the idol way. And only one of those ways leads to life. But let's zoom in a little more closely on the, all six of those minor judges. This is the second thing. Six minor players in a six-pack major problem. I was happy with that title. Um, we have spoken before about the minor judges. Minor does not mean they are insignificant or unimportant. It just means that there's not much written about them. So we talk about the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, long, big books. And then we talk about the minor prophets, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Why? Why are they called minor? Because they're like two, three chapters long or something like that. It's just a way of distinguishing what are the big books and what are the little books. So it is with the judges. There's judges like Samson. We know lots about him. But we don't know very much about Shamgar. So major and minor. There are six of each. And the minor judges, if you see on the outline there, I think on a point one, you'll see how they sort of appear as one, first Shamgar, and then there's some others, and then two, there's Tolda and Jair, and then some others, and then three, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. So just a little refresh, who was Shamgar? It was a while since we've seen him, Judges 3.31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So Shamgar pops onto the scene after there had been 80 years of rest. And that rest was accomplished by God delivering his people through lefty Ehud, who took his secret dagger out when poor Eglon was on his quote-unquote throne, the toilet. And uh, as we have noted, Ehud solved Israel's hardships, but he could not change Israel's heart. So there follows 80 years of political rest, and then Philistines show up out of nowhere. They, they go to the five coastal cities that when um, Joshua had brought the, the, the nation into the promised land, they decimated those cities, but they did not repopulate them. So these Greeks float down in their boats. Uh, they're called Philistines, and they land on the coast, and they see these five empty cities and said, thank you very much, we'll take those. And you got Philistines in your backyard for the rest of your history. Uh, so they move in. That's where Shamgar comes in. And whether it was in one battle or many, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. just says that he wiped out uh, 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is the eight foot tall. It's taller than me, kids. Uh, it's like if I put my hand up really high. It's that tall. It's like a long, long stick. And it's got a pointy end at one end. And it's got kind of a little spade at the other end. And you would carry that sort of under your arm and the oxen were in front of you. And if they went a little too slow, you give it a little poke poke. And if you get a little mud on your uh, whatever the thing is that your oxen are pulling, you flip it around and you use the spade to get the mud off. And if you're Shamgar, you use it to kill 600 Philistines. So that's what he did with his ox goad. We don't know anything other than that. He has a very unusual way of killing Philistines. Then comes Deborah, then comes Gideon. After Gideon, no more rest. Gideon's illegitimate son, Abimelech, not a judge, but an evil man with an evil plan who stands up, or who ends up dead from a rock to the head. That takes us to the next minor judges, and that's Tola and Jair. Now these guys are average leaders who have their place. Tola 
Uh, Judges 10, Abimelech arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, man of Issachar. He lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. He arose to save Israel. Specific language in the book of Judges, bringing about deliverance to get to some form of political peace. We don't know what that was. We don't know how he did it. We just know he did it. And we know that Jair is never said to have done it. This is verse 3 of Judges 10. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, the day in which the book was written, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. So these two guys, Tola and Jair, set up a sort of breather in the midst of the story. Just a little time to sort of pause. And it's a spot where the author is showing us how Israel's full-scale apostasy, remember they're worshiping the seven fake gods, the seven idols, in spite of Israel's, or rather of of Yahweh's full-scale deliverance, because he rescued them from the seven foreign invaders. This is giving us the opportunity to look at this and and sort of feel the the growing tension in the storyline. And that tension is this, God keeps delivering his people through both fantastic and normal means, but they keep turning their hearts back to the defeated idols of the nations. And we have argued throughout that this is such a vivid picture for our battle as individual Christians. Because if you're a Christian, then you know Jesus defeated sin, he defeated Satan, and he defeated death. And even though we have been completely and fully delivered from these enemies, we continue to make poor choices out of our fear of death. We adopt the manipulative methods suggested by Satan, and we plunge headlong into sin and try to fix our problems sinfully. And just like Israel, we need a savior. But we need a full-scale savior, don't we? One who not only performs that initial rescue operation, Operation, but one who also drags us along to glory in spite of ourselves. Remember, even, even Israel's groaning and moaning and crying out to Yahweh is not so much the heart of repentance as it was the pain of circumstances which their failed idolatry had led them into. It's the cry of the one who got caught with the hand in the cookie jar rather than the moan of the contrite who can't believe he wanted the cookie in the first place. And God sees this mess that Israel got herself into, and he sends another Savior and another until he doesn't. Remember those foreboding words in chapter 10, verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You want idols? You got idols. Knock yourself out. Run to your idols. See how that goes for you. Imagine if the book ended there. Imagine if the story ended there. Imagine if we ended there. Then comes along the complicated Jephthah, who's either a brash, rash dictator or a well-intentioned Yahweh man, and that takes us to where we are today, these three minor judges. Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon, mortal men who make meager saviors. Like the two minor judges right before them, Tola and Jair, One thing is written about five of the six minor judges that's easy to miss unless you sort of put them all in a line. 
It wasn't written about Shamgar, but we see it with the other five. What's that one thing that's true about all of them? They all died. Judges 10.2, then Tola died and was buried. 10.5, Jair died and was buried. 12.10, Ibzan died and was buried. 12.12, Elon died and was buried. 12.15, Abdon died and was buried. And when you put it all in a row like that, I think you're supposed to observe something of the futility of the judges. These men, this woman, they can't be that full-scale savior that the problem we face cries out for. I mean, they do, they, part, they do their part, but then they go the way of all the earth, don't they? They die. They are buried. I don't know. I don't see it in the book of Judges, but perhaps it was true, but I don't know. If people uh, were tempted to idolize their judge, what I do know is that in our society, we're tempted to idolize leaders, celebrities, rock stars. Sometimes it's a really, really good idea to look your idol in the eye and tell it, you will die. Just like me. And then you and I will stand before the ultimate judge, God himself. I mean, maybe you're tempted to live for the approval of your parents. And that parental approval becomes really your functional God, your savior, your idol. You may not even like your parents but you want more than anything else in the world to hear them say, well done, my good and faithful daughter. But no matter what you do, no matter how well you do, it's never enough. You never hear it. That approval never comes. The kind words of encouragement are never heard. And because you effectually worship that approval, you are devastated. You are ruined when it doesn't come. Well, it might serve you well to consider that your parents are going to die one day. Which means, even if your parents were to tell you exactly what you want to hear, they have made a terrible Savior and a terrible God, a horrible God, a pathetic idol. And I don't suggest by this that then you should dishonor your parents, dismiss your dad, disown your mom. I am merely saying that each of us as individuals will meet the same fate. We will die. And then we will stand before God and we will explain our own lives. And if you get to that point of standing before God and your defense for all your sins and, and all of your poor choices is to say something like, well, I pined for my parents' approval. That will sound as hollow and stupid then as it does now. Live for the living God. If you're in Christ, he already approves of you 110%. There is nothing to fear. Every other supposed deity will die. They're not worth living for. Baal is not real. Asher is not real. Fame is not real. Celebrity is not real. 
and we're looking at these minor judges, they come right on the heels of the work of Jephthah, who we saw last week, that short-lived six-year daughter-surrendering judge. Uh, his rule was six years. He delivers Israel from the lying Ammonites. Remember the Ammonites say, we want some land back that wasn't theirs. And Anyway, it's all taken care of. And then come the minor judges. Ibsen, Judges 12, verse 8. Here we go. After him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. Now what's most memorable about Ibsen is the size of his family. 30 sons, 30 daughters. But please notice the way it's written and the superabundance of women in his life. He brought in 30 women for his 30 sons to marry. And he made sure that his 30 daughters all had husbands. That's a lot of talk about women, especially when it's placed in comparison to the judge who came right before him. Do you remember that one fact of Jephthah, Judges 11.34, when his daughter came out to greet him? She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So it's like Ibsen's overflowing quiver of 60 in comparison to Jephthah's one is meant to grab your attention. You can't help but notice. This guy's got 60 married children, and this dude over here has one unmarried and now sacrificed a child. And as you just read through the story, it should prompt you to ask why. Why does one man lose his only child when the next guy gets 60 married ones? And the answer to the why question always belongs to who? To the Lord, thank you. To the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed things in the book, we're to do it. But the secret things belong to him. They don't belong to you. They don't belong to me. God tells you everything you need to know. Everything. But he wisely withholds from you what you do not need to know. Ours is to do what he calls us to do. What he has revealed, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And then to leave the secret things, the unrevealed things, in his capable hand. For instance, why is it that this woman over here ends up in an unwanted pregnancy when this couple over here spends thousands on fertility treatments but never is able to conceive? It is not a sin to ask God why. It is a sin to demand that he answer and to demand that he answer with an answer you approve of. You recall Job's three friends? Once they opened their mouths, their tit-for-tat worldview religion, it just sort of spilled out. 
Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Thus it is written in the law of the Medes and Persians. They didn't say that part. But that's essentially, you just take all the book of Job, they just keep saying the same thing. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Hey, Job, bad things are happening to you. The problem is with you. And Job keeps saying, I'm a righteous man. God said at the beginning, there is not a more righteous man on earth than this man, Job. And yet God is the one who brought all the trial into Job's life. The death of his children, the loss of his crops and his his herds and his own physical illness. It all came from the hand of God. It was under God's hand. God's the one who looks around and says to Satan, you may go and do this now. And Satan only goes as far as the leash that he's on. God holds the leash. God is infinitely more wise and purposeful than good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And all it took in the book of Job was for God to show up in the whirlwind in order for Job to perceive that adopting that man-made philosophy of good things are good people, bad things are bad people, that just explodes when when you see the real God and you realize all I'm trying to do with with that man-made philosophy is fashion a God after my own image. God has his reasons for all that he does. And he's not required to tell you what those reasons are. And yet we can see in the case of Jephthah and Ibsen, the childless and the childful, that God used both of them. They were judges, they were saviors, they were deliverers for his people. Since we're talking about childlessness, perhaps a good place to speak to those of you struggling with fertility issues And I would just say, take note, first of all, that whether or not you have children is not what defines you and it's not what justifies you. You think of Jephthah, if our reading of that story is correct, then he was given one child and only one child. He ends up having to surrender that child and that made him no less a judge and no less a man. And if you have no children or sadly have lost your children in utero, One of the many things I want to say to you is that, that number one, God is not rejecting you. And number two, you must learn to surrender to the hard providences in life. And I'm not just, I'm talking to all of us now. We, we, We love to give God credit for our victories. We have to learn to attribute to him the authorship of our hardships too. Just listen to these scriptures. Exodus 4.11, God says to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Deuteronomy 32.39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Or think of Jesus walking with some of his disciples when his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? That's a little friends of Job religion. Bad thing happened? It must have been caused by another bad thing. So who was it? Whose sin was it? Was the guy's parents or was it his sin that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why God chooses to do what God does is his business. But we know what he's revealed to us. We've got it in the book. He's revealed to us that he is good, that he is wise, and that he is right. Even when his secret plan brings hardship and suffering into our lives, he is good, he is wise, and he is right. And everyone, every Christian who has met with God in person in the midst of their hard, hard experiences, everyone who's been able to get all the way to God in that horrible moment has been able to say miraculously with Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I'm just going to lean in a little more since we're on this topic of hard providences in the life of Christians Maybe a word for the rest of us when we're observing some difficulty in the life of a fellow Christian before you think you know the reason why that's taking place. Maybe just remember Acts chapter 12. Peter and James are both in prison. Peter is rescued by an angel from the prison of Herod. James gets his head cut off in the same prison by the same Herod. Both apostles, both godly, but one dies and another lives. Or consider Matthew chapter 2. The toddler Jesus escapes out of Bethlehem because his dad is given a vision in a dream. A few days later, all the other male toddlers in Bethlehem are brutally murdered. And we can look at these circumstances and say, why God? Why? Why is a dangerous question though, isn't it? And in all likelihood, when you're looking at your friends who are suffering in hard providences, you are likely the last person who has any clue why that is happening. Are you going to walk up to James's widow and say, you know, you should have prayed harder? Are you going to go to the, 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 the childless member, mothers of Bethlehem? And say, oh, this happened to you because there must be some unconfessed sin in your life. You know, stupid statements like that betray a pint-sized God and not a full-scale Savior. The very best thing Job's counselors did was sit quietly with their mouths shut. (laughs) And perhaps the very best thing we can do when our friends are suffering, when, when your sister loses another child or finds out that another fertility treatment has failed or that the only other fertility option available to them is not something that she can do as a Christian, perhaps the very best thing you can do is put on your metaphorical sackcloth and ashes and say with her, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or say nothing at all except to Almighty God in your prayers. We are never told if Ibsen and Jephthah knew one another, but that's not the point. For us, as readers of their life stories, we're getting forced to ask, is this God trustable? One man has one kid that he loses. The next guy has 60, all neatly married off. Can you trust the one who rules over all? And the answer, of course, is yes. 
Now he goes on with his many wives, um, and rather his many children. He has many connections by marriage. All is well for Ibsen. That takes us to Elon, Judges 12, verse 11. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. You basically cannot get more minor than Elon. <laughs> He did not invent electric cars. He did not send rockets to space. He did not awkwardly rebrand a social media giant. This Elon just judged Israel for 10 years. Then he, too, died, just as the other Elon will, too. Which takes us to the last minor judge, who is Abdon. We know a little bit more about him. Verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 male donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And here we don't see any mention of daughters, but what we see is that Abdon was the son of Hillel. He had 40 sons and he had 30 grandsons and they all rode on 70 male donkeys. That's a lot of testosterone in one report of one judge. And it seems we're supposed to be getting a sense of something of his strength and his manly manness and his, his vitality. The whole riding on donkeys thing, it's always strange to our ears. Like, oh, you can go to Center Island and ride on a donkey. Not the same thing. Riding on a donkey is like having the best of car available. It's having a car when nobody else does. It's, it's a sign of wealth, a sign of power, a sign of standing. I have 70 of them. This man must be incredibly wealthy. You'll notice that nothing's said about his character, nothing about his exploits. By the time you get to him, you start to think that what's really grabbing the heart and the admiration of Israel in these days, it's not a man clothed with the spirit of the Lord, set apart by the angel of the Lord to defend the glory of the Lord, but whether or not the dude had a lot of money in the bank. It's funny how things don't change. When your life just, you know, smack dab into trouble, What's your first instinct? Is it to run to God? Or is it to start searching around for who do I know with some connections? Who do I know with some means? Who are my most wealthiest friends that I can tap into in order to get myself out of this jam? Everything in Israel at this point in their story seems to be measured by very tangible Evidences of wealth, 70 donkeys, 70 sons, political alliances through marriage, as if God needs rich and powerful people to accomplish his will. I mean, really? Haven't we learned that by now? Like you, you, you need rich people to do things? Can I just do an aside? Sometimes it concerns me when we as Christians, we hear, did you hear that that, that athlete is like turned to Christ? Or did you hear that this, this movie star now is, is talking about Jesus? Why are we so excited? Is it because we think they're going to do more for God because of their platform or because of what blah, 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 blah? You think the angels are going, oh, we got a blue jay. No, they're, they're looking at some little 12-year-old in here who's hearing the word of God. And is suddenly burdened by their own sins. And then is, is looking in their own heart to God and in their own words saying, I need 
the Savior. And God, the Holy Spirit, in his great mercy and power, is rushing in and bringing life where there was death. You want to know what the angels are cheering about? They're cheering about that. They're cheering about the Blue Jay, too, if it's real. They're not cheering more about the Blue Jay than that. Maybe we should get ourselves aligned. Judges tells us over and over again that what these people need and what we need is a forever savior who's going to pull us out of all our silly ways. And sadly, they don't get one. Not in these three, not in Samson who's going to come. But they do get one in a man who was born of a virgin in a borrowed barn, who grew up in a backwater fishing town after spending years on the run in a foreign country, had a questionable origin story, no place to call home, walked straight toward hostile Jerusalem where he was killed by crucifixion. It was prophesied of him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, like look with admiration. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. And although he died, unlike all 12 of these judges died, he rose again. There's your difference. And now he offers real life, eternal life to all who trust in him. Friend, do you long for rest Do you find it hard to trust in God when life seems to go sideways? Are you struggling to bend your will to his will when life is hard? How often God brings these hard providences into our lives to help us see what we're really living for. A beach, in the sun, by the ocean is not going to give life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, including all the beaches, and forfeit his soul? We need to learn from those who have gone before us. Life can only be found from the author of life. Live for him and you will live forever.